be fully uh, transparent with you. I have not seen that whole movie, uh, but I did find that, that clip very uh, appropriate for today. Uh, in case you don't know, the gentleman sitting there in the black suit, his, his name is Joe Black, and he is actually death in, incarnate, right? So when he's sitting there, and they, he's trying to figure out why somebody would pair death and taxes, because he knows what death is. And, and so he asked that question of, well, who said that? Um, and so there's, there's kind of a debate over who said that first, who paired those two together first. Uh, but what made it most popular was in 19, or excuse me, 1789, uh, Benjamin Franklin was writing a letter to a friend of his. A friend of his in France had, had asked, you know, how are things going? How's the, the new nation going? How's the government being established? And, and so Benjamin Franklin wrote back, to his friend in France, and he said this. He said, Our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanence. But in this world, nothing can, said, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Now, I don't know that Benjamin Franklin coined that phrase. In fact, I'm pretty sure he didn't, but he's probably the one who gets credit for making that phrase popular as it is pairing death and taxes as two things that are certain in life. And I don't know about you, but I think if the last two years of our world have taught us anything, it should have probably taught us how unpredictable and how uncertain this life is. Let me give you an example. Two years ago, yesterday, um, so two years ago, back up in our calendar, two years ago yesterday, we were, a group of us were down in, close to Charlotte uh, doing the Awana games, all right? So we had a whole bunch of kids doing the Awana games with a whole bunch of other churches and, and kids running around doing all kinds of different games. That was two years ago yesterday, all right? So Saturday before two years ago. And then fast forward uh, to, to the very next week, um, a group of men and I were in Lynchburg, Virginia um, on Friday and Saturday for a men's conference. And before we got back home on Sunday, the question wasn't, are we going to be able to have this cool Awana games? The question really was, are we going to be able to open our doors for worship service tomorrow morning? It changed that quickly that we could be all together and we could have all these kids running around to, you probably shouldn't even open your doors tomorrow for church. And all of that changed within really a week's time and really within a few days of, of all that pandemic starting. And so some things just really happened really quick and caused us really kind of things we took for granted, things we always thought were going to happen suddenly were, were changing and were different. We had all these questions about uh, what we're being expected and what's going to happen and what's not going to happen. Uh, for some of you, um, two years ago, you were looking at to plan your retirement, and then all of a sudden the stock market took a nosedive, and uh, your 401k and your retirement account went with it, and so suddenly you had all these questions of, uh, can I retire? Is now the right time? Is it, is it going to happen? Is it even going to be a possibility for us? And then for some of us, our, our, our accounts have started to rebound, and, and we're just starting to catch our breath from all of that uncertainty, and then we drove by a gas pump, and we completely lost our breath again because we were shocked at gas prices that we honestly have haven't seen in, in probably 8, maybe 10, 12 years. We haven't seen prices this high for gas. And, and so then if you turn on the news, the uncertainty just continues. And there's this, this war going on in Europe that hasn't happened in, in most of our lifetimes. And, and what's going to happen? Is, there, is it going to impact us? Is this, as some people say, the beginning of the end, the beginning of World War III? And, and all of these uncertainties that are going on in our life. And so I would think that if the past two years have had any lesson for us... It is that life is really uncertain, that, that there's really some things that are really unpredictable. Even in our wildest imagination, some of us could not have predicted the things or even thought about the things 
that happened in the past two years. And so it has left a lot of people in our society, and maybe even you sitting here this morning or you watching online, really searching for some permanence really searching for something that is solid, something that is certain, regardless of what else happens. Right? And we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9 this morning, and we're going to, to look at the very last uh, uh, six verses, I believe it is, of the book of Hebrew, or, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 9, um, starting in verse 23. And we're going to see that he gives us some things that are certain. Right? In this life, there are some things that, regardless of what else happens, these things are are certain, right? And so, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn with the Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 23, and I'll kind of give you the spoiler alert that Ben Franklin at least had part of his idea right, that death is one of these certain things. Taxes, maybe not so much, but I would say he's probably right about that too. But go ahead and read with us. Um, in Hebrews chapter 9, we'll start in verse 23. It says, Therefore, it was necessary for the copy of these things in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves to be purified with a better sacrifices, or excuse me, with better sacrifices than these. For the Messiah did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but a heaven, but into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. He did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest entered the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it was appointed for people to die once and after this judgment... So also the Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. God, we thank you that in the midst of chaos, in the midst of this world that we are living in, in the midst of all the uncertainties and unpredictability that goes on around us each and every day, God, we thank you that we have an anchor. God, we thank you that we have security when all else falls apart. And God, even when the world tells us there is no good news, God, we know the great news of who you are. God, and even in these uncertainties and these questions that we have of what's going to happen, God, we know that we can trust you because of what you've said. And we know we can trust you because of what you've done for us. And God, this morning... I pray that as we look at these things that are certain to come, that are 100% absolute for everyone sitting in this room and everyone watching online, God, we can't change their coming, but we can prepare for them. And so, God, I pray this morning that everyone sitting in this room and everyone watching online, God, that we either are or will prepare for these things that we know for certain will happen, Father. And so, God, I pray that with all of our hearts, in our mind and our souls, that you speak to us this morning. And God, for some of us, maybe it's going to be the first time that we're faced with these realities. And God, for some of us, it may be the first time that we realize that we need to prepare for these things. And so, God, I pray that we're open to that. God, I pray for some of us that, that have prepared for, that we are just reminded of the assurance of them and the assurance we have through them, Father. And so, God, I pray that you speak. And I pray that we listen with open ears and heart, God, so that we glorify you with all that we have. Father, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
Jeff Mack is an author and an illustrator of children's book, and he's, he's written or illustrated 40 different, probably well over 40 different uh, children's books. Some of them he didn't write, he just illustrated, he just drew the pictures for somebody else's word, uh, but probably about half of them he wrote, um, and he also illustrated them himself. So some of you, I, I'll be honest with you, the book that terrified me the most as a child, was written by this man. So I'm a little hesitant to, to mention him. Some of you may have had to read the book Benicula when you were a kid about that vampire bunny rabbit, all right, that sucked all the life out of vegetables. If you didn't read it, thank goodness. Your, your teachers were nice to you in Stokes County. That was our form of torture. I had nightmares about this bunny rabbit that was a vampire. But Jeff Mack wrote that book, and he wrote all these other books, but his, believe it or not, his most popular book, out of all the books that he's written, out of all the books that he's written and illustrated, the most popular one is this book that's called Good News, Bad News. And what's interesting to me about this book is this is my kind of book. This is the cover of it. This is my kind of book, all right? Because it contains four words. The four words that you see on the title, with the exception of one, there's one extra word like on the next to last page, but with the exception of that one, the only words that appear in that book are the same words on that title. Good News, Bad News. And now they repeat over and over and over because this story um, is about uh, the, this optimistic rabbit. You can see him there and this pessimistic mouse. And uh, these two are planning a picnic together. And so that's, that's good news. But then it starts to rain, which is bad news. But fortunately, the, the rabbit, he's prepared for rain because he brought an umbrella. So it's good news. Well, so he hands the, the umbrella to the mouse who, who's not prepared for the wind and what's going on. And so the wind picks the mouse up with the umbrella and carries him off. That's bad news. The good news is it carries him to a tree, an apple tree, where the, the, it shades and, and it's sheltered from the rain. And so he lands underneath this apple tree, which shelters him from the rain, which is good news, right? Except then an apple falls on his head and hits him in the head, which is bad news. And so the story continues. I won't go through the whole story. I'll leave the plot twist for you. There's really not one, but it is really just good news or bad news, right? Uh, so th it's this very simple story, but it, it does have this kind of uh, this amazing idea that folks can look at a situation. They can look at an event, and some people can see that event from a good perspective, and some people can see that same event from a bad perspective. And some people can see it as good news, and others see it as bad news. For example, when it started raining, the mouse automatically saw this was bad news. Why? Because he wasn't prepared for rain. However, the rabbit, he didn't mind if it was raining because he was prepared for it. So rain wasn't bad news for him. It, it, he was ready for it. He had his umbrella. He had everything we needed. So it wasn't bad news for him. In fact, you could even say that it was a good thing because it allowed him to share the umbrella with the mouse. So it allowed him to be an even better friend. You see, there's some things in our life that our preparation for those things really determine whether it is good news or whether it is bad news. There are some things in our life that may look bad, feel bad, be extremely bad from an outside perspective, but in the inside, because we prepared for them and because we know the outcome of them, they really are good news. See, the same thing is true in the first certainty of life that's presented to us in this passage, which is death. Now, most of us sitting here today, most of us don't think death is good news, right? If you've experienced the death of a loved one, and most of us have uh, in some capacity or another, we don't think of it as good news. 
But the reality is that, that death is presented in this passage as good news, not only for us, but sitting here, but for the whole world. It is the death of Christ that is the best news for everyone. And in fact, it was his death was the sole reason for his first coming. The author, as we've been working through the book of Hebrews, is, has been building this case of why Jesus is greater, why Jesus is superior to anything and everything, why he's superior to Moses, why he's superior to Aaron, why he's superior to the, the priest of Israel, why he's superior to the sanctuary uh, and the temple and the tabernacle that they worship in, why Jesus is, is the best. Right? And so he's really encouraging his readers to abandon all your other thoughts, abandon all your other options, all the ways that you've tried to come to God, all the ways that you've tried to connect with God and reconnect with God. Just abandon all of those. Because next to Christ, there are no other options. Apart from Jesus, he is the best, he is the superior way, and in fact, there is no other way. And so he's been building this case that you should just abandon all all these other ideas, all these other approaches to get to heaven because Christ is superior. He, he serves in a superior heavenly tabernacle. He serves as the permanent superior priest of all the priests of Israel. In verse 25, he introduces this subject of his sufficient sacrifice and how it's superior. Now, he, he's going to repeat this. Right? He does this from time to time. He introduces the subject here, and then he picks it up in greater detail over here. So he's going to do that to us in this verse. In verse 25, he's going to introduce introduce this idea of this superior, supreme, sufficient sacrifice. And then next week, we're going to come back to chapter 10, and he's really going to hammer that point home. All right? So it gives you just this little foretaste, this little trailer of the event that's coming, and then he's going to hammer it home next week in chapter 10. All right? So I want you to read with me verse 25. He says in verse 25, He did not do this to offer himself many times, as the high priests enter the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. And so what he's alluding to there is something that you and I may not be familiar with, but if you're, you're used to Old Testament customs and, and history, and uh, you may be familiar with it. Because what he's alluding to is the one year or one day in the year that the high priest goes into the holy place, the holy of holies. Right? It is the one day a year that one person is allowed to go into what they consider the presence of God himself. It is the day of atonement. And it happens one day every year, but only one day, and only one person is allowed to go in there. Now, before he goes in this room, he has to have a sacrifice. And the sacrifice is to cover his sins. He's got to, he's got to, to shed the blood of an animal for his sins. And then he goes and does a sacrifice for all the sins of the, uh, the whole nation. So the only way he's allowed to go into the presence of God, the only way he's allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, is because he goes in through the blood of another, that being the animal that, that he sacrificed because of his sins first. But then he flips it in verse 26, and he tells us in verse 26, listen, things are different with Jesus. We don't have this repeating cycle that goes on and on with Jesus. In verse 26, he says, Otherwise, he, being Jesus, would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now, he has appeared one time, at the end of the ages, for the removal of sin by the, by the sacrificing of 
himself. Now, that's a big, there's a whole lot of, of great stuff in that passage, but I want to hone in on two words in that passage for just a moment. I think I've got them underlined in that text there, but these two words, you probably saw them, has appeared in that verse. There's something uh, pretty interesting going on when you, when you look at those two words, and not just in this verse, but really if you zoom out to the whole passage we looked at, verse 24 or 23, all the way through verse 28. Because what we find interesting in that passage, and some of you may be English-minded people, and you may have picked up on this as we were reading through that passage, that verb, to appear, occurs three different times. Now, here's the cool thing. It occurs in all three different tenses. It occurs in the, the past tense here in verse 26. It occurs in the present tense in verse 24. And then in verse 28, it is the future tense. So, past present and future, there is this appearing of Christ that happens. Now, here's the other cool thing, and, and you're just going to have to be excited with me, all right? You're, you're going to have to join on my train because this is awesome, and we don't get this in English because all we have in English is this word appears. Has appeared, is appearing, will appear, okay? But I got to tell you, this is the beauty of it. This is the sad part that we miss in our English translation because every one of those words that we translate to appear, has appeared, all those, in Greek is actually a different word, right? And, and they do that because every word, every one of those different Greek words has a little different flavor to it. It's got a little different spice to the, to the idea of his appearing. And so we miss some of the beauty. Some of it gets lost in translation when we don't realize the richness of these ideas here in English. So let me show you what I mean here in verse 26. And like I said, this is, it, you guys are just going to have to be excited with me because I can't do all this excitement by myself. But here in verse 26, the Greek word uh, is fenhiro, all right? And fenhiro means to make visible or to appear by making something visible, right? It doesn't mean that you make something. It just means that you make it appear because you make it visible, Right? Let me give you an example. If, if all of you are breathing this morning, and all of you hopefully still are breathing after those songs, and, and, and I, I see you're, you're blinking and you're moving around, so you're breathing. Right? Life, breath is going in you and out of you. Right? We all know that. You don't see that happening. Right? Nobody sees your breath when you breathe in. Nobody sees your breath when you breathe out. Except if it was really cold this morning. And it's not, but if it was, so we're going to have to back up a few weeks to, to when it was cold. And you walked outside. And all of a sudden, you breathed out. What did you see? You saw your breath. Now, does that mean that when you didn't see it, it wasn't there? No, that just means it was invisible to you. Right? So you're still breathing. That thing, that thing that you saw outside on a cold winter day, it's still happening. It's always existed. In fact, if you, when you came out of the womb, you started that breathing process, and you've always been doing it. You just don't always see it. So that's what this means. The, 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 our suddenly, our breath that we see on a cold winter day is this Greek word. This is the phanhareo, all right? This is the appearing because it's been made visible to us. And this is what the author is saying about Jesus, that Jesus didn't get made, he didn't get shaped, he didn't get formed on Christmas morning, right? He became visible to us on Christmas morning. He already existed. He's always existed, just as God the Father has always existed for all of eternity. He's always been there. We just didn't get to see him until he appeared, until he became visible to us on Christmas morning. And so he's always existed, but now he has appeared, being past tense, I mean he made himself visible to us. And why did he appear? Why did he make himself visible to us? That's when we look at the end of verse 26. For the removal of sin by the sacrificing of himself. You see, the sole reason 
for Jesus to come, to make himself visible, to make himself take on human flesh and blood, was so that he could sacrifice himself for us. Now, I want you to think for a moment. If you were one of his disciples, you have given everything to follow this guy. You walked away from your family. You walked away from your family business. You left the boats. You left the nets. You left everything behind to follow this guy. And for three years, you have walked where he's walked. You have listened to everything he said. And, and for three years, man, you have just been listening and poured into for these three years. And you're so excited until one day he gets arrested. And then that day, he, his trial happens. And then that same day, or maybe even the next day, you see the one that you've been following and giving your life to, the one that you thought was the Savior of the world, hanging, nailed on a cross. How tragic and heartbreaking that must have been for those disciples. And honestly, most of them didn't even make it to that point. There's only one of them that was there for the cross. The rest of them were so heartbroken and so tragic, and, and they were so dismayed that this could even happen. They took off. And this was the most tragic event in their life for many of them. But what they didn't understand was this was the plan the whole time. The, the bad news, the worst news that they had ever heard that they saw nailed to the cross was actually the greatest news that they had ever experienced. It was his death and his blood that was shed for others, for you and for me. His sacrifice paid for our sins that separated us from God. And so we might have a chance to, so that we might have this chance to enter into the Holy of Holies, that we might have a chance not to go into God's presence one day a year if we're the high priest and we sacrifice something else. He did all of that for us. The presence of God is open to us because of the blood of another. Not because of your blood and my blood and not because of the blood of an animal, but because of the blood of another. And so we get the chance to be in the presence of God not one day a year, not once a month, not once a week, but for all eternity. See, the bad news of His death is actually great news for us. And it's the great news for us because not only is His death certain for Him, but death is also certain for us. And see, and this is where folks are like, whoa, I was all right with Jesus' death, but now you're talking about mine. Now we're getting personal, Michael. But I give you this story. I tell you this because this is the reality. In verse 27, it makes it clear. And he says in verse 27, in the start of that verse, he says, Just as it was appointed for people to die once. You see, death is not a subject that many people want to talk about, but it's a reality that all of us are going to face. And if you don't believe me, let me show you some statistics. I want you to think for just a moment. What is the survival rate of people that lived in Jesus' day? Zero. Nobody that lived in Jesus' day is still with us today. All right? None. The survival rate of the first century? Zero. Guess what the survival rate of the fifth century was? Zero. Guess what the survival rate of the tenth century was? Somebody that was born in the tenth century? Zero. None of them are still here. Okay? And so let's fast forward through time just a little bit. Let's take it all the way, all the way to the 19th century. Guess what the survival rate of the 19th century is? Zero. No one born in the 19th century is still with us today. Every one of them has passed away. And so we got to think, we got to look at this past history, and no one from the, from the 1st century, 5th century, 10th century, all the way to the 19th century, none of those have survived. The survival rate on planet Earth is zero. So here's a question. Why do we think us who were born in the 20th century and you guys that were born in the 21st century, why do you think your generation is going to be any different than all the other centuries before you? It's not. Your survival rate and my survival rate, the survival rate of humans on planet Earth, 
is always going to remain zero. We cannot remain on this earth forever. We were not made to do that. And there, there's some things that are going to happen in the, when we come back. But in the meantime, we were not made to be on this earth separated from God forever. And so you might think that, that you have more time or less time. And I don't really know about that. But I do know this, that on average, 8,000 people in America die every single day. And that's just an average. Some days are more, some days are less. And, and I, I just can't help but to think of those 8,000 people that saw the sunrise yesterday that didn't see the sunrise this morning. And I don't know all their situations, but I imagine some of those 8,000 people had plans for today. Some of those 8,000 people probably had plans to come to church this morning. Maybe not this church, maybe another church, maybe a church somewhere, but they, they had plans to come to church or, or go to church this morning. Some of them had plans to meet up with their family and eat lunch together this afternoon. Some of them had plans to, to play with their kids or hang out with their friends this evening. And, and for some of them, they were planning to do all of this stuff, but none of it's going to happen. Why? Because they're one of the 8,000 that saw the sunrise yesterday but didn't see the sunrise today. And I've got news for you. There's 8,000 people today who saw the sunrise come up this morning that won't see the sunrise tomorrow. Why? Because their appointed time is up. You see, we don't get to pick when that happens. We don't get to pick the time of our death. We, we don't get to say, hey, this is it. I'm ready. I'm at this point. What we get to do is know the reality of death and prepare for the reality of death. We don't get to decide that we don't want to die. We don't get to decide the time that we die. We just simply get to accept the reality and prepare that this is going to happen. So how in the world do you prepare for death? And I'm not talking about the planning of states, and I'm talking about the actual death itself. And you do it by trusting in the one who has defeated death. You do it by trusting the one who, who has appeared, gave his life as a sacrifice on the cross, was buried in the tomb, three days later started breathing new life again, came out of the tomb when everyone watched him die. He came out of this tomb and he defeated death from the inside out. He gave himself into death so he could defeat death from the inside out. And so I want you to understand that, that for us who trust in that, for us who, who believe in that, death is not bad news. Listen, I want to share with you, I've had some very tragic deaths in my life and death is hard news. Death is painful news for us that are here. But for the ones that are going through it who are believers, death is not bad news. It is actually good news. It is actually beautiful news. You see, death is the doorway to our eternal home. Death is the doorway to heaven and to paradise. Death is the doorway to the place that we were meant to be where there are no more tears and no more pain. It's the place, it's the doorway to the place that you wake up and your back doesn't hurt in the morning. Your knees work just fine and you don't have any aches and pains. It is the doorway to the place where there's no more heartaches and no more heartbreaks. It is the door to the place where there are no hospitals, no ambulances, and no cemeteries anymore. It is the doorway to the very presence of God himself. And so when we begin to see death from that perspective, for us that are left here, yes, it is hard. Yes, it is painful. But for the one who is walking through the doorway into the presence of God, it is not bad news. It is beautiful news. It is wonderful news to walk through that door and see the one who gave everything for you. You see, but death is also a doorway to a second certainty of life. And that is that there is judgment that follows that death. You see, a few weeks ago, 
I don't know how many of you watched the Winter Olympics, but uh, we, we, we watched different parts of it. And if you watch the Winter Olympics, same thing with the Summer Olympics, th- there are certain events that require judges to do their job, right? Some of them are based on speed, and so that's easy. They just, can I beat this one? Some of them, you know, like that curling thing, and whoever gets closest, I still don't understand how all that works, and the sweeping and brooms. And anyway, but there, there's some events that you have to have a judge to make decisions on, right? For example, figure skating, right? I'm not a huge figure skating fan, but I just I find myself just fascinated that people can can do that on a like a single little metal blade, right? And the reason is because if I tried that, like you would find me either in a cemetery or a rest home somewhere else because I would not survive that incident. But, but they're, the skaters get on this ice and they do their little warm-up thing and all of a sudden the music starts. They take their pose and music starts. And then they start skating. And they start doing all of these tricks. There's these, these jumps and these lifts. And, 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 and while they're doing this, the judge is watching every part of it. And the judge's job is to award them points for what they do in that time that they are given, right? So if they jump and they do a, a double axle, which I don't even know what that is. I know double, you spin twice, and I don't know what makes it an axle, but that's it, all right? That's, that's the extent of my, my figure skating knowledge. But there are folks that do those double axles. They spin around twice, and they land, ta-da, they get points for that. But then there's other people who will do a triple axle. Okay, and all I know the difference is now we spin around three times instead of two times. Okay, I'm assuming because I've never tried it. I'm just assuming that spinning around three times is harder than spinning around two times. Okay, and then if I remember right, there's this one dude who's actually done it four times. Like he's done this quad thing that nobody else has done in history. So I don't know about all how all that works. But if somebody does this triple axle, the judge gives them more points than the person who does the double axle. Okay. But the job of the judge is not just to say, hey, here's a double, here's a triple, but he's kind of evaluate the execution of those, okay? Because a double axle, jump up, spin around twice, and land, may be executed perfectly, right? They land, they skate off, and everything is beautiful, just like it's supposed to be. However, the other guy over here may try, or the other lady over here may try the triple axle and, and may not make it beautiful. It may not work very well. In fact, they may fall and... and, and land on their bottom instead of on their skates on the ice. And so then just because this person tried to do something and failed at it, do they still get the full points for what they tried? Does it still get more points for trying the double but being perfect on it versus trying the triple and not doing it? See, this is the job of the judge, right? How, How does the judge decide that this person who did perfect work versus this person who tried really hard but didn't do it perfect, how do we distinguish between which one was better? Because let's be honest, if there was no judge that made that decision, then I'm going out and I'm going to try a quadruple every single time. Now, my quadruple is going to be me sitting down on my bottom and spinning around in a circle four times, be like, ta-da, I'm done. I don't have to make it look pretty. I don't have to do anything, execute it great, if there's not a judge who's going to make a decision. You see, we, we have this idea in our mind that judging and judgment is bad. But the reality is, it's not bad. Many of our sports are based on it. I want you to think, nobody gets mad at the judge of the skating competition for doing his job, right? Nobody gets mad and calls him judgmental. That's his job. It's his job to judge. It is his job to award points and deduct points. That is what he is paid to do. Imagine how interesting figure skating or any other sport you want. Imagine how fun it would be if, he re, if the judge rewarded no points for anything. 
So you go out there and have this killer routine and you kill it and everything is amazing. And the judge holds up his sign, zero. And the next skater gets out there and they do like half of what you did, zero. I imagine that judge is not going to be a judge very long. That, that sport is going to die if everybody gets a zero. But the same thing is true if there's no deductions, right? So think about it. What if, like, this guy goes out there and skate, and he does the Michael Rakes version, and it is terrible, and it's the worst thing you've ever seen, and the judge holds up 10. That was beautiful. That was perfect. And then this guy comes and follows me and does this absolutely beautiful quad, all this great stuff, and the judge gives him the exact same 10, like, whoa, that's not right. We need a judge. You know what you need? You need judgment. You need someone to be judgmental. And so don't automatically think that judgment is bad and judge, being judgmental is bad because what it tells us is there is a standard that needs to be met. But as we watch the Olympics, one of the things that, that, that I'm reminded of over and over and over is that those skaters spend all of this time preparing and they get one shot in front of the judges. That's it. They get one chance to do this routine in front of the judges and gain their points or prevent from losing points. That's all they get. Like, they don't get to finish their routine and be like, you know what, I really messed up about halfway through. So let's go back, let's, let's start over, and let's try this again. Now, that's not how it works. If you watch the Olympics, what happens is they, they take their pose, the music starts, they do their little routine, good or bad, and then when the music stops... They put these little things on their skates, and then they walk over to, I call it the little waiting area, the little judgment box, and they just got to sit there, and really that's just for the cameras. They just have to sit there until the judge announces the score. You see, the moment the music stops, and the moment they walk off the ice, there is nothing they can do to add to their point value. When they walk off the ice, when they, when they finish their routine, everything is set. Everything is sealed at that moment. They get this one chance, and then after this one chance, it is out of their hands completely. See, that's the point the author is making at the end of verse 27, except he's not talking about figure skating. He's talking about life and our eternal judge. In verse 27, he starts off, he says, In this and, excuse me, and, as, and just as it was appointed for people to die once, and after this, judgment. Judgment is the second certainty of life, and you only get one chance at life. There is no second chances. There's no redos. There's no start over. There's only one chance. There's only one life. And when you die, what you did in this life is sealed. We don't get to re-argue. We don't get to this idea of reincarnation and coming back is not biblical at all. We don't get a second chance at it. What we get is one life. And that is it. Charles Spurgeon sums it up in a beautiful way. He says, a man dies once. And after that, everything is fixed and settled. He is answering, or excuse me, he answers for his doings at the judgment. One life, one death, and everything is weighed and the results are declared. But the point of what Hebrews is telling us is there is one judgment that happens and it happens for all of us. Or, or there is judgment that happens and it happens for all of us. And it follows our death. And it, it, it's based on what we did in our life. That the moment we die, we don't get a second chance. We don't get this second opportunity. We don't get to change our opinions or the way we did things. We just live this life. We die. And then there is judgment. Now here's the beauty of it. Because for us, TV and, and, and Hollywood has done the Christian idea a terrible disservice. Because what TV and, and, and Hollywood has done is they put this extra drama into death. 
They put this extra drama into this judgment. What they've told you and what they've made you believe is that you're going to die, and then you're going to go to heaven, and you're going to sit in that, that waiting box. And you're going to sit there, and you're going to wring your hands while God decides whether you were good enough or bad enough. He's going to put your good deeds on this side and your bad deeds on this side. And, and for some of us, we have this even built up in our mind that, that we're just going to sit there and we're going to see all these deeds and we're going to sweat this thing out until it's fully decided. And I've got to share with you the beauty of the judgment of Christ is it's not that way at all. The beauty of the judgment of Christ is that it is already decided that the moment we die, we don't have to sit and wring our hands. We don't have to sit and question whether we're going to make it into heaven or not. We, we simply know that we're going to be in heaven because we are sealed at the point of our death, that, that we either died in Christ or we had died apart from Christ, that we were either believers and, and we trusted in Christ or we turned our back on Christ. We did that in this life. And so there's no question when we die whether we're going to heaven or not because that was sealed in this life. Did we die in Christ or did we die without Him? Right? And for those of us that die in Christ, we don't fear that moment of judgment. Why? Because I want to show you verse 24. Look with me. This is beautiful. Verse 24. For the Messiah did not enter a sanctuary made with, human ha- or made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself. So that he might now appear in the presence of God. Did you notice that word again, that, that, that verb, to appear? This time, this is the present tense of it. He now appears. This is present. Where is Christ now? He is appearing. He is in Heaven. He is in the presence of God. Right now, I want to remind you that that uh, we talked about how all of these are different Greek words, and they all have kind of a different flavor. And here's the beauty of of this Greek word. This word it does mean to appear, but it means to appear by informing, to appear by uh, declaring something plainly. In, in kind of a legal sense, this is the appearing of entering something into evidence. Right? For you guys that are old enough to remember the O.J. Simpson trial, this is the appearing of the bloody glove when the lawyer held it up. And he says, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. This is that moment in that trial when the, when the, the lawyer is holding that up. It is very clear this is the evidence that announces our innocence or our guilt. All right? This is his appearing now. This is what he is doing now in this moment. So I want you to listen to the beauty of this. We don't have to fear judgment after death. We will face judgment. We don't have to fear that judgment. Why? Because our advocate, our mediator, our lawyer, where is he? He's already there. He's already presently in this moment in the courtroom standing before the judge and he's holding up the evidence that sets us free. He's standing before God right now, serving in the heavenly sanctuary, and he's showing him two pieces of evidence. One, he's showing the scars in his hands and in his feet. And he says, these nails paid all the debt for anybody who died in me. And the other thing he's showing him is the Lamb's Book of Life, which is this book that contains every name of every believer who's ever died or trusted in Christ Jesus. And he says, listen, you see Michael Rakes down there? This is the scar that put his name in this book. And I don't have to fear judgment. Why? Because my adversary, my, my, no, excuse me, my, adversary, my advocate, my mediator, he is already there. He's already holding up the evidence before God. And all he's doing now is just waiting for me to come and join him. 
All he's doing now is just waiting for me to come and to announce that, that I am innocent. And it's all taken care of. It's all done. You see, we don't have to fear judgment. We have to prepare for judgment. We prepare for judgment the same way we prepare for death. And it is the trusting the one who has appeared to pay for our sins, the one who now appears on our behalf. You see, we prepare for judgment by turning our case completely over to him. You see, some of us are still trying to argue that we're good enough. Some of you sitting in here this morning or watching online, some of you are still trying to argue that you have done enough good stuff. You know what he says? None of that's evidence. None of that's going to work. The only way that you prepare for judgment is giving your case completely to Him. Giving your case completely to Him and saying, Listen, I don't have to fear judgment of hell and heaven. I don't have to fear because it's not based on what I did. It's based on what He did. And His nails and His sacrifice sealed all of that for me. All I have to do is trust that He's going to argue the case for me. You see, we get this whole life to prepare for this moment. And the moment's not to earn it. The moment is to trust the one who's already done it. See, there's one certainty, there's one more certainty in life that's presented in this passage, and that is his return. In our Wednesday night Bible study, we've been talking about the end times, and uh, we're going to finish up this week, and we're actually going to finish up by talking about his return, his coming to establish this thousand-year uh, kingdom reign here on earth. And uh, as we started early in the class, we really started talking about the assurance of his coming. And uh, one thing that I, that I probably knew and I forgot uh, until kind of rereading for this class is here's this statistic for you guys that are numbers people. For every one verse that talks about his first coming, there are eight verses that talk about his second coming. One author narrated it down this way. He said, in the New Testament, one out of every 25 verses in the New Testament refers to the return of Christ. In verse 28 is one of those verses. In verse 28, the author says, So also the Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation for those who wait for him. So how do we know that Christ will appear a second time? Because he has appeared a first time. Because he appeared the first time and he provided this fulfillment of over a hundred different prophecies. And so if he, uh, he, he fulfilled those, he appeared the first time, then we stand a pretty good chance he's going to fulfill the 200 that are still waiting in his second coming. So how do we know that Christ is going to appear a second time? Because he told us he would. In John chapter 14, uh, verse 3, he told his disciples and he tells all of us, he said, I go away and I prepare a place for you. I will come back and receive you to myself. So where I am, you will be, or you may also be. We can rest assured that he has appeared here on earth. We can rest assured that he now appears before God. We can rest assured that he's going to appear. He will appear here again on this earth. And so we've talked about this appearing. And this is the third and final appearance of it. This is the future tense of it. But like all the other ones, this is a different Greek word. right? This appearing means to appear by witnessing or seeing something with your own eyes. It is an appearing that is evident uh, by, uh, excuse me, it's an appearing by becoming acquainted with through firsthand knowledge or firsthand experience. I want you to listen to me. The world will experience Christ. The world will see Him. The world will know His return. And the world will become acquainted with Christ and experience Him firsthand. The question simply is, will the world be prepared for His coming and His return, or will they not? You see, in the first time, 
he came will be very different than his second coming. In verse 28, it says that his first coming, he came as the sacrificial lamb. He came to bear sins. But when he returns, he's not coming to bear sins. He's not coming to be sacrificed. He's coming to bring salvation, which means he's coming to be a warrior and a deliverer. He's coming to defeat the enemy and rescue those who are waiting for him. He's coming to avenge the death of all those who have been martyred over the last seven years of the tribulation period. And so for them, for those that have died and for those that are waiting for him, this is not just good news. This is glorious news. This is a glorious event. This is great news because they've been waiting. They've been anticipating his return. And now it is going to happen. And for them, it will happen. You see, but for those that aren't waiting for him, they're going to experience Christ. But they're not going to experience the Christ who came to bear sins. They're going to experience the Christ who came to judge sins. They're going to experience the Christ who came to bring the wrath of God and the punishment of God because they didn't accept Him the first time. You see, the, the, for those that aren't waiting for Him, that didn't accept His sacrificial death, this is not good news. This is terrifying news. This is the worst news ever because at that moment, their fate is already sealed. You see, in this unpredictable world that we live in, we can know for certain that life is not going to last forever. That at some time, our, our appointed time will be over. And everyone sitting in this room and everyone watching online, at some point, our time will be over and we will face death. And that death will open up the door to a judgment. And one day, each and every one of us is going to face our Creator. And we're going to answer uh, for our doings and our, our, our what we've done but we're really going to answer one question that's going to determine heaven or hell for everyone in this room and everyone watching online. And the question is not, were you good enough? The question is not, did you do enough? The question is not how much you did for church or how many times you attended church. The question is simply this. What did you do with Jesus? Did you accept Him when He had appeared? When He came to bear sins, did you give your sins to Him? Did you let him plead your case in the presence or did you keep fighting for yourself? Are you eagerly awaiting his return? Or are you ready to keep fighting against him and trying to deny what is rightfully his? See, death, judgment, and his return, there's no question. These will happen. The only question for you this morning is are you prepared for them? Let's pray together.